0: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the author of Politico's daily Brussels playbook column. It's a background change this week. We've come down from the Swiss mountains, from the policy Las Vegas that is Davos, and we've returned to the policy Milton Keynes of Brussels. Was that joke too weird? Never mind. Let's get back to the action. This week, we're speaking to the Prime Minister of Slovenia, Miro Serra, the head of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, Sumer Chakrabarty, and one of the stars of Davos, the Liberal MEP, Marit Sharka. So, how does Davos look in the rearview mirror? Well, it's clear Global Britain is still more theory than reality. Theresa May talked about everything except what the audience wanted to know about, her detailed Brexit and tax policy. Even Donald Trump's best efforts at unifying his country and the world aren't that good. India, underwhelming. Justin Trudeau, Well, he looked good, but he also came with the only real news, which was a revived trans-Pacific trade deal. In Brussels, it's been a weird week. One where a Eurosceptic Czech Prime Minister has been greeted with relief, and that's because he's nicer than his president. And also a week where Italy launched a court appeal against a press release. That's right. They want the European Medicines Agency to be moved to Milan from Amsterdam, and they're complaining about the press release that announced the change. But first, let's hear from the front line of the Czech Republic. And first, we're joined by Siegfried Mortkowitz Politico's reporter in Prague, to talk about what's been a busy few days in Czech politics. Hi, Siegfried. Welcome to EU Confidential.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: You're very, very welcome. Uh, now... The big news is obviously that one of the continent's leading Euroskeptics, the incumbent Czech president, Milos Zeman, he won re-election at the weekend. It was a very tight race in the end, but he won. Uh, for those who don't know Zeman, could you describe him and his style of politics?
1: Divisive, arrogant, uh, he's, he wants power, uh, uninhibited, uh, extremist when he needs to be, and Uh, less extremist when it suits him.
0: uh. Well, that's that's a lot of tough words. Uh, I can kind of guess his EU policy from that, but what do you think his re-election will mean for the
1: EU? We don't know, because this was his last hurrah. He's 73 years old, he's ill, and he already said he's not going to run for office again, so there's no electorate to placate. We don't know what he's going to do. Uh, some people like in Prague think he might actually moderate his views towards the EU now.
0: What do you think is behind that belief? I have really no He hasn't really demonstrated it with any of his actions.
1: Because he's really unpredictable. And he divided Czech society for one reason only, to get power and to hold on to power. And it worked. Now he's got power for the last time. And uh, because he's so unpredictable, we don't know really what he's going to do. He could continue the same, in the same vein. Interestingly, on the victory podium after the election on Saturday was Tomio Okamura, the head of the extreme right-wing, anti-Muslim, anti-EU, anti-immigrant SPD. So that may be a clue.
0: Now, another person who likes to accumulate power is the new Prime Minister of the Czech Republic, Andrzej Babiš. Now, he is the owner of a billion euro set of businesses. He's now also the Prime Minister. He supported Mr. Zeman, but he's kind of pitching himself as a softer, nicer version of Eurosceptic, someone who doesn't support those extreme parties that were on the stage uh, with the re-elected president. You've just interviewed him here in Brussels. What was his message for Jean-Claude Juncker when he came here this week?
1: Well, according to Babish, his message was, please get off our backs regarding the migrant quota and let us negotiate a settlement. Deal, solve the uh, immigration problem outside of Europe and let us deal with it at home. And he said, if we don't, then he said basically, après moi, le déluge. If you don't support me, the next time it will be Okamura. Will get thirty percent in the election, and uh, he'll be much harder to deal with. And he, he's much more extremist.
0: And he's got a bit of an evidence base to make that point because Czechs are quite skeptical. Um, if you look at the range of EU countries and their levels of trust in the EU, it's really down to about thirty uh, percent trust and support in the, in the Czech Republic now, mm, isn't it? Is that's that right? Something that goes deeper than migration, or it's really being driven by the migration
1: crisis? I think. The migration crisis exacerbated uh, a disappointment uh, with the EU, simply because uh, there were a lot of high expectations after the Velvet Revolution that uh, everybody's lives was going to be better. Because, look, under communism, everyone was more or less equal in their suffering. After the revolution, I think everybody expected the same kind of equality, but in terms of A richer version of it. Yes, yes, yes. That hasn't happened. I think they're disappointed with the new economic system, disappointed with that the EU hasn't made them as good as their neighbors. The Czechs have always been very envious of their neighbors. And they see the people in Prague and Brno with big cars, lots of money. And they live in the villages. Uh, Zeman's support came mostly from the countryside. It, it really is city versus country. Yes, is. in in the Czech Republic, absolutely. And a lot of that has really to do with, is caused by inequality.
0: And one of the other arguments I was reading this week is that the Czechs relied a little bit too much on their revered president, uh, Havel, in the years after the Velvet Revolution. And there wasn't so much work put into building up a broader civil society. And then when you lose some of those figureheads and you don't have more of those roots in the ground of strong democratic institutions. The argument is that that has left the country much more exposed to these competing populist voices.
1: Well, I don't know how true that is. Ironically, Minos Seman was head of the Social Democratic Party starting in 93. And the function of the Social Democratic Party, their mission was to spread democracy, to make people understand the benefits of democracy. And Zeman was very good at that. But again, he used that to get power. He became prime minister. Obviously, it didn't take hold yet. I think there are a lot of people, a lot of Czechs now who wish they remained in communism.
0: Well, let's swivel back to uh, Prime Minister Babiš for a second. He is really the caretaker prime minister. Mm -hmm. Um, How is he going? In his efforts to form a permanent government, what are the obstacles to to really making sure he can stick around for a while?
1: Well, his problem, obviously, is that he's been charged with subsidy fraud regarding an EU subsidy for his Acrofet holding company. Most Czech parties refuse to support him because he's been charged with a crime.
0: And they believe it, or it's a front for some other political opposition that they always wanted to... Well, that's what
1: Babish says. He says the, whole, the the charge is politically motivated, but they obviously believe it because they voted to lift his parliamentary immunity so he can be put on trial. So he's got trouble. His main chance is Seman. Mirosema. And Mirosemal is also his main obstacle.
0: Well, they might stand or fall together, it sounds like. Sigrid Morkovitz, thank you very much for joining us on EU Confidential.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Maritja Scharker is known in Davos Talk as a young global leader, and she played a leading role in a big dinner on future European integration and on a number of high-level tech panels. Like many of the European leaders at the forum, Scharker was unafraid to tackle hard power issues, and that helped make her a crowd-favorite.
2: Well, I'm really happy to see more self-confidence. I think we have a lot to celebrate in Europe. And of course, we've had difficult years, but we shouldn't talk ourselves down. And that has happened in the past, I think, where it was just punching and punching and punching on, on Europe, even though, you know, uh, we still have high quality of life, enormous freedoms for people and enormous opportunities. So I'm glad that there's now a tension on how we can go forward instead of talking ourselves down. But I think we should not be distracted. Of course, there's a lot of work that needs to be done and it cannot mean that the problems and challenges have evaporated in one year that would be unrealistic Mm -hmm.
0: one thing i'm also interested in and i'm sure anyone listening would be too is what the world economic forum is like on the inside not Mm. just as an event but an organization you're one of the select nominated young global leaders Mm. and so we hear all of the basic criticisms of this is just a bunch of champagne globalists up here on the mountain and the bad optics of all of the private planes and so on. From the inside, what seems as constructive and what is your take on your own participation?
2: Well, the Young Global Leaders are actually quite a diverse group and I'm really impressed with that group and I'm really grateful that I'm a part of it because it's a, it's a group of people from civil society, from the world of the arts, also from the business community, but certainly people working on politics, women's rights, social entrepreneurs, And so I see the future in that group, which is much more diverse, much more values driven than just, you know, profit driven, for example. So that has been reassuring. And it's, of course, nice to have a group of people that you meet here and there in the different sessions you can catch up with and you can just chat with and that are becoming like friends in many cases.
0: And it's obviously a very uh, intense experience here up on the mountain where you feel like you're surrounded by incredibly clever, incredibly well-resourced, incredibly energetic people. What do you hope happens once everyone goes back home? Because there's 51 other weeks in the year where it isn't a uh, high-octane Davos, mm-hmm. uh, but there's still a lot of problems that the world has to solve.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's true what you're saying, that it's you know high pressure and uh, packed schedules and very important people walking around here quite casually but i do think that generally people are approachable so you know everybody talks about davos moments where they ran into their big investor or the key contact that they needed to bring their their work forward and first i thought well how easy would it be to just run into people sounds a bit you know romanticized but i actually did run into john kerry and you know we served together as chief observers in kenya john kerry for the carter Center and I did for the EU and we had a chance to catch up. So there is an informality about talking to people, so I think that's nice. What I hope will happen after this meeting is of course that people who make statements on stage here about the commitments they have to equality, uh, inclusiveness, promotion of purpose-driven business or pro-European cooperation and impact, that they're actually going to turn those words into actions.
0: I think actually maybe I'll end on the note by saying WEF's big task for the year is to get more women into the Congress Center. They made a very oh. good symbolic gesture by having seven female co-chairs this year. People like the YGL group and others are much more diverse than who the corporations send along. But this 80-20 split, it's got to end, doesn't it?
2: No, it's actually quite shocking. I was at a dinner with, I think, around 50 people where there was three female participants. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really something that i don't experience very often even though i work in a men's world anyway but it's true it's very male dominated and uh, more diversity and inclusiveness is a message that the wef can take on board
0: maritza shaka thank you for joining us on davos confidential i think it's time for a glass of wine and to catch the train home absolutely melania trump didn't make it to davos but the second most famous Slovene did and he also took out some time to speak to eu confidential here is Prime Minister Miro Serra's pitch for Slovenia to become the center of Europe's growing circular economy.
3: Well, I'm very excited about the youth now in Slovenia. Uh, we have a very progressive young people, not just young people, also others, but among the young people, there are many who uh, are very innovative, who are making breakthroughs in the field of setup, uh, startups. I always emphasize this, the modernization with human face and human purpose. Mm-hmm. This is what we really need and what the the society uh, and the planet needs. And I took also uh, a part in the panel on uh, circular economy Mm -hmm. yesterday, which I I understand as something very important for the planet. I strongly believe that uh, the circular economy is not only a choice anymore, but it has become a civilizational necessity.
0: And what are some of the things that Slovenia does to really make sure we're reusing and reducing the resources?
3: Just yesterday, I announced that Slovenia is ready to finance the European Circular Economy Hub in Slovenia. Yes, because we would like to share our experience uh, with uh, some countries from the Western and Eastern Europe and uh, after a few years of extensive and intensive work in Slovenia we can Uh, really we are ready actually to open such a hub uh, which would bring our experience broader to some other country especially to the countries of western balkan Mm -hmm. which we deem very important for europe and we cooperate with them very closely
0: and is that something you'll do on your own initiative or you'll work with the european commission to to set up that hub
3: actually in the field of circular economy we work i mean the government and i uh, With my uh, cabinet we work together with some other representatives of some European states like uh, Finland, Netherlands, Luxembourg. But basically, uh, we support the idea and practice of circular economy. The partnership for green economy, we already connected more than 2,000 stakeholders from private sector, from academia, non-governmental organizations, and of course, the government and local government. So we want to prove in practice with with, uh, actions, not just uh, by talking that uh, the things should move very fast in this direction, otherwise the planet will simply uh, get overburdened with all kinds of uh, you know, things which uh, destroy our living.
0: Prime Minister Serra, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Next up, we'll hear from Suma Chakrabadi, the head of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. We spoke to him in the noisy Palantir Lounge in Davos. So that's the lounge of the tech company that just loves to be involved in security and surveillance. This might be the one place in the whole world Palantir wasn't spying on someone because it was literally impossible to hear through the noise. So please bear with us during this interview. We hope you'll like what Suma Chakrabarty has to say. Now, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development is not an institution of the European Union. So I asked Chakrabarty how outsiders should understand the distinction between his bank And others like the European Investment Bank?
4: So, first of all, I mean, the EBID, yes, it's got global membership, but it's got a majority EU membership, and that's written into its constitution. It was a European idea, it's Francois Mitterrand who really brought it into being. And I still regard it very much as a European development institution, but one of the successes of being a European development institution is attracting in shareholders from outside as well, outside of the EU, like the United States, but also the borrowing countries. I think one of the great models of this bank is that those who borrow from us have voice, have voice and can participate in our governance. Other banks don't always have that, and I think that's really, really important. But yes, we've been working both in the EU, but also outside the EU. Some of the most advanced countries that we work in are now EU member states, Poland, Hungary, and so on. And then we have a whole neighborhood of uh, states where we're working. And where the fundamental purpose of much of what we're doing is equipping them, should the day ever come, for accession to the EU. Very much helping them with what we call the approximation process, reforms of their uh, investment climate, so that they become fit and ready and proper for accession one day. Whether it's in the Western Balkans, for example, or in Georgia. Uh, These are countries where we're really trying to make them hit the standards we need them to hit if they want to come into the EU later. And then of course we work even beyond that in new territory. We're, we're in a very interesting development bank because we're the development bank that is called the regional bank but it isn't really a regional bank. Mm-hmm. We started off of course in Eastern Europe but we're in Central Asia, Turkey, we're in North Africa, Cyprus and Greece after the crisis. So that is because our shareholders, led by Europeans, thought that the business model of the EBRD was more important than the geography, actually. That we could work effectively as a development bank across all these different geographies.
0: Chakrabarty has an aggressive view of the EBRD business model, which he explains here.
4: You know, first of all, our business model is the most extreme pro-private sector business model there is amongst all multi-development banks, so we are different, actually. Others will do some private sector lending, but we are, you know, in the 70 to 80% territory every year private sector lending. we just had a record year by the way as well in many of the countries where we work we work very happily and well with eib with the world bank and others as well often co-financing projects together but i think what we've seen particularly if you take north africa where when we went there the same question was asked is there room for ebid alongside the african development bank the eib the afd of france kfw what have we shown that actually we're very complementary and we did, have done a really good job in scaling up so fast in that region in five years. Huge portfolio of projects. Egypt now our number, number two country of operations after Turkey. Turkey in nine years, the number one. You know, this shows that the EBRD's business model is complementary to the work of the others. Why is that important for sub-Saharan Africa? Everyone rightly talks about it. I think what Werner Hoy has done is a a great service, actually, to the debate about what do we need to do in terms of development in sub-Saharan Africa, because it it matters for Europe. If you're a development person, it matters for development reasons. If you're worried about migration, it matters for those sort of reasons. Africa has to develop. For that to to happen,
5: you need,
4: really, a development bank that will take risk. Which bank has the highest risk appetite in the world, EBID? You know, which bank has capital that can do use EBRD? Which bank puts boots on the ground? You cannot do, be a development bank unless you have boots on the ground because you have to have that matrix of a sector knowledge and a country knowledge. That's EBRD's business model again.
0: I asked Chakrabarty to explain his Davos experience, given the overwhelming numbers of Wall Street and other bankers jostling for space with him and the politicians.
4: I'm going through them all. The thing, uh, the one I'm most uh, taken by is this new spirit of engagement between public institutions like EBRD and the private sector financiers. So I've been involved in a couple of meetings now when I've actually been table chair at one of those where we're discussing how do you attract private sector financiers to come into the development space in countries, let's face it, which have difficult agendas, in a difficult environments and often with some difficult people and what can we do and uh, as a bank to attract them and it's been a very fruitful agenda because we in the EBID because we've been doing this for 27 years it's exactly that crowding in private finance mobilizing private finance having targets for our teams to do that we have some examples to offer of the innovation and creativity you need to track those finances in and that's been very very successful and we can show that for poor countries, as well as 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 mostly the middle-income countries that we work in as well.
0: If Europeans are to successfully support the continent of Africa and other neighboring countries to really get the millions of jobs they need and deal with challenges around climate change, migration and instability, it's going to have to happen very quickly and at a very large scale. Sumer Chakrabarty tells us exactly how he plans to do it.
4: And one of the things you need to do in running these is always be open to new ideas. So, it's been very important. The first ever impact investing in the UK public sector was actually the Ministry of Justice when I was permanent secretary. It was to do with Peterborough Prison. It was involving these private sector financiers to come in and actually help with the rehabilitation of ex offenders. They didn't re offend, and then they got a return if they didn't re offend for two years. That started me thinking we should do this more in development too, not just in UK public services. I'm glad it took it up in Zambia, and now we are thinking of. Uh, doing more of this, actually, so we have a whole group created now within EBRD on impact investing as well. And people like Bill will be very much part of that. Ruben and the Armenian financier, again, another one. These people are very interested in moving down that route with us as well.
0: And now it's time to bring back in the Brussels Brains Trust, Alva Finn. How are you doing?
6: I'm good. How are you?
0: Lena Aberus, Welcome Hi. back.
6: Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva.
0: I missed you guys in Davos last week. It's great to be here. We've got a very fascinating EU WTF. Uh, like, this is genuinely WTF, mm. isn't it? I am talking about the monkey and human emissions <laughs> scandal at what we thought was Volkswagen but is actually Volkswagen Daimler BMW and a bunch of other companies where in order to test the effect of the emissions from certain vehicles at different points monkeys and humans were locked into a room with said emissions and they just
5: turned on the gas
0: where do we even start Alva
5: I mean I think it's just bizarre because it's one of the most famous ways of of trying to kill yourself is to lock yourself in a garage and, and turn on your car. So the idea that they did this to people who willingly participated in an experiment is it's just totally unethical.
0: It is. Lena.
6: Totally not surprised because the car makers industry, I think they are jump, running around from one scandal to another. It's, it's uh, more than uh, uh, 25. Since 1987 or 89, these scandals are, are breaking one after the other from bribery, to corruption, to emissions, to, and now with, with this. So I think just adding more to the diversity of their misusing their power, misusing human, misusing the governance that they call um, And a
0: total lack of common sense. Absolutely. I mean, two other things I wanna bring in here. So uh, first of all, why are we as the audience of this scandal so focused on the monkeys? Like there are actual people that were being put through this process. And then the second point is these are all German companies. What on earth is a German company doing putting anything in a room and turning the gas on? I mean, what have we not learned from history? We're
5: experimenting on, on human people. beings. Yeah. Yeah. It's animal welfare lobbying, I
6: think, and we, d- we need human welfare lobbying uh, to, to, to raise these issues,
5: I think. But also, what were the results? I can't imagine that they were good.
0: No. I, I think they I, probably told us what we feared about all of these vehicles. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I guess the other point is uh, what happens now in terms of accountability. You have the horror of the activity. But the man, the 82-year-old researcher, I'll pull up his name now, he is Professor Helmut Grime of the now-defunct European Research Group on Environment and Health in the Transport Sector, He says there were three to four meetings a year with all of the companies involved in this so that there's no way senior employees in those companies didn't didn't. know that this was going on.
5: And also, they're probably facing lawsuits if those people are still alive.
0: Not in Germany, because they've done everything they could to avoid uh, collective action lawsuits being made possible in the EU legal system. Um. So, if you're going to do it, Germany's a good place to try and pull this stunt.
6: It would be interesting to know if they have received any funding from the EU.
0: That is a very interesting if, question.
6: Yeah, if they did, I hope that there would be some action, some like a kind of uh, legal action, maybe. And another point that really bothered me is that they made, or one of like polishing immediately is making the the chief lobbyist resign, as if... It was one man's show, as if there's no a chain of command and hierarchy and corporate governance and uh, committees on, on these issues. He's also very,
0: very... Uh, that he's
6: suspended, and he's taking all responsibility if needed. I mean, but this is he's like the lobbyist. Show. The mm-hmm. lobbyist
0: wasn't sitting there in the gas chamber working out how to cheat the emissions system.
6: No, but what a uh, very weak response and belittling to the minds of the citizens of Europe, I think and to their customers.
5: Yeah, that's just throwing someone to the wolves and saying it's this guy's fault when it doesn't really seem like a chief lobbyist would have anything to do with commissioning this kind of a study.
0: Indeed. Well, here's another surprising fact. A Czech family has been granted asylum in New Zealand after receiving death threats from neo-Nazis. How's that for a
5: segue? Uh, I read the story with shock and horror, but then as I continued to read, it didn't uh, horrify me so much because the woman in question is the mother of um, children that she raised with a Roma partner. We know that discrimination against Romani, travellers, it's very prevalent across europe it's one of the things actually that the eu tries to combat at an eu level but it hasn't been very effective unfortunately but yeah it's very shocking that allegedly the czech um authorities did not protect this woman from that kind of she was receiving terrible threats well, gas chamber kind mm-hmm. of threats again um from people who are writing to her and actually her and her children had to be lock themselves in a bathroom all night because their house was basically not being. A, I'm not sure if it was attacked, but someone was throwing fireworks at it. This kind of thing. And I mean, that's real worrying harassment. And, and, and we've had
0: this before um, when we looked at the attacks on the New Year's baby in Austria, attacked yeah. for being a, a child born to Muslim parents. But a point I would make about Central Europe is that there is a real. Uh, apartheid system basically from a very young age like there is genuinely educational apartheid mm-hmm. and the EU is trying to take several national governments to court mm-hmm. for basically segregating children in the way that we would have condemned in South Africa or mm-hmm. in the south of the United States mm-hmm. and putting them in separate schools because of their background Lena Th-
6: this is a systematic discrimination i think in, in it's happening in, in In this part of of the world. And it's really worrying because we see press conferences and we see statements from Brussels here, from the institutions. Uh, I believe there was uh, infringement uh, proceedings against uh, the Czech government. But this should have like an immediate impact. There should be some measures that really make the others believe that the EU is, is tackling the problem. It's not like just when we are winning more and more uh, f- from the right side and more governments are, are being in power we we'll just leave them until they destroy more and make the whole environment of their country worsen given as well 72% of the Czech are against having refugees and the, the quota that the eu has so the 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 differences between prague and brussels and the rest of the member states is really a huge gap but What are we doing about it? How are they tackling it? Just by taking them to court? You know, the courts are, proceedings are so long and uh, you can always make it go for years and years. At the end of the day, a woman with four children had to flee her country and go and find peace in in a different continent. Is this something we need to (laughs) just leave it for court? It's really worrying and painful.
0: I think not, but to bring it back to the practice of this podcast, it makes me think we shouldn't have an EU thumbs up this week because those are two pretty horrifying stories and i'm not sure europe deserves a thumbs up this week
5: i fully oh, agree I with you. disagree oh tell us more <laughs> tell us more alba cheer one. us up come, come on you. <laughs> you. um uh, well you know ryan and also lena that i'm a pro choice campaigner and in ireland we finally finally moved towards having a referendum on our very very restrictive abortion laws um, we don't know what the date is yet i'm eagerly anticipating so that i can book flights and go home for it but because
0: they make you go home to vote you can't just turn up ex- at the end
5: exactly of and actually yeah it's, a lot of people aren't even able to vote once you're outside of Ireland uh, for a certain amount of time you get taken off the register but it's something that I would b- like to be home for anyway um, and what
0: changed was it Leo Varadkar the T-shock coming out and saying that he is now going to back it and that he's won his cabinet over
5: No, I mean, they had, so it's been a long process. I've I've been campaigning for this change for over three years now. So there was a a huge public shift, kind of in the way there was for uh, the pro-marriage equality referendum a few years ago, but public opinion has really been changing. I still think it's going to be an uphill battle, but we've seen a few polls now that say that the repeal side, which is the pro-choice side, is coming out on top. I think what really changed it was that we had a citizens' assembly. So this is a very interesting type of participative democracy where we had 99 citizens all chosen because they they reflect our population. And these people decided in the end, after they had seen all the evidence uh, for and against to not only repeal, but put in place something that would allow for abortion without restriction. Yeah, hopefully we'll be seeing a change soon, but it will be very nasty I think the
0: campaign well there we go we're going to return to that subject very soon I think now it is time to retrial our MEP of the week experiment <laughs> we tried that a couple of weeks back before Davos and we need to report back on our attempts to contact the MEP of the week from the first episode and that was Pervanche Beres who is a left-wing a socialist MEP from France I spent a good 45 minutes sitting outside Ms. Bereza's office this afternoon seeking some comment, and uh, unfortunately we weren't able to nail that one down. But in her absence, I will tell you a little bit more about her. She's been campaigning very hard to clamp down on tax avoidance, and her general approach to politics is to uh, use the instruments of the state to try and reduce inequality. And so we chose her two weeks ago because she was the only MEP that we recognized um, out of all the names <laughs> yeah. we drew out of a hat. So now it is time to bring it back. Michelle, hand no on over that box. box. Here we go. Oh my God. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. Now, Alva, why don't you dive on in bring names? out a name? Just one.
5: Now it would be an, an Irish MEP. Okay, MED. who have we got? Okay, <laughs> Marc Jolod is a French MEP in the EPP
0: cannot say I've Julo? ever heard of him. Lena? Neither have I. Okay, no, Lena, no. now you've got to go on in.
5: This is really un- like revealing our ignorance. I don't know why uh, we're doing this.
0: says <laughs> as much about the MEPs as it does about us.
5: <laughs> okay. Caroline Nachtagel
6: from the uh, ALDI, and she's from Netherlands. So
0: she's a Dutch liberal. N- yes. No, I know several Dutch Liberals. Yeah. One of them has just appeared on the earlier segment of the podcast, but I've never heard of her. Okay. Mm. What am I bringing out? I have got... Please
5: be one I know.
0: Florent Marcelisi. He is a Green MEP from Spain. No.
5: <laughs>
0: God, we're setting a new record now. This is,
5: this
0: is I love it. It's like the Olympics. This come on, Albert. This is
5: really Alba. embarrassing. Yeah, I know. Okay. Hold on a minute. Please be one we know. Well, come on there. Martin... Hostling.
0: No, not uh, for me from anyway. From
5: Germany, he's with the Greens. Oh, Lena, have
0: you recognizing him? It's a, a white man from Germany, now Even is it down?
5: Just say you do. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have no, to I keep going until we pick one, no? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. One of Go. us is gonna
0: know one, please. Oh yes, yay! Okay, yay. Sorry. so Lambert Van Nistelrooy. He is a Christian Democrat from the Netherlands. I have sat on a bus with him before in Italy. Have you heard of Lambert?
5: I don't think so. What's his deal? Lena, have
0: you heard of Lambert?
5: Unfortunately
0: not. Oh, no. Okay. This is, a, this this is becoming a very strange us, experiment. We yeah. just, like, pull names out of a hat until I remember <laughs> sitting on a bus with someone. So Lambert is a big campaigner for digital connectivity ah. across the Netherlands. So he represents, well, they're from a national list there, but he does have a particular interest in the more rural and regional constituencies. And he um, is someone who's very surprising. Like, you don't sit next to him and think you're going to have a geek out session on the intricacies of spectrum policy and how to get... Farms connected to the internet, but you definitely do get that from Lambert van Nistelrooy. Oh. So, should well we follow I up with him and get him to explain certainly. and defend himself?
6: And more MEPs should be on the bus. Yes. Yes.
0: yes. Oh. That's the problem. Like, I'm you sure can't I don't always get a good one. Yeah, we do, but we
5: just don't know the order. Yeah, He's yeah. cycling. They don't get on, on the bus, they're well. cycling. I don't yeah. work on environmental things, unfortunately. Yeah, you've that's probably passed him
0: on the street before. Like, in your raincoat, everyone looks the same. Yeah,
5: that's true.
0: <sighs> well, yeah. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thanks, everyone, for joining. We've had a lot of fun. We hope you did, too. If you've got a moment, please take the time to rate, review, or subscribe to the podcast so that you get it quicker and we build our community. Thanks to Michelle Stoddart and Andrew Gray and Weidong Ling for everything they do to make EU Confidential possible.